Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, you are very welcome to The Tonight Show. A race against time at the bottom of the sea. The missing sub-search continues in the depths of the Atlantic Ocean. The U.S. Coast Guard says new noises have been detected in the search site and it's not giving up hope. With respect to the noises specifically, we, we don't know what they are. We, we hope um, that when we're able to get additional ROVs, which will be there in the morning, the intent will be to continue to search um, in those areas where the noises were detected. In other news tonight, Ireland is officially the most expensive country in the EU for goods and services, as hotels hike prices already ahead of next year's Taylor Swift concert. But can anything be done about it? And is our neutrality on the line? We debate on the eve of the Forum on International Security. Do join our conversation online with your comments and your questions. It's hashtag tonight, BMTV. the dramatic story dominating global media coverage. An expanded search effort is now underway for the missing Titanic tourist commercial submersible in the Atlantic Ocean, but time is running out. New noises have been monitored near the search site, but the source is unclear. The clock is ticking to find the five people on board. The sub's air supply is expected to run out tomorrow morning. However, tonight, the US Coast Guard said there is still some hope of finding the vessel named Titan. With respect to the noises specifically, we, we don't know what they are, uh, to be frank with you. Um, we, the, the P3 detected noises. That's why they're up there. That's why they're doing what they're doing. That's why they put sonar buoys in the water. Um, we, we hope um, that when we're able to get additional ROVs, which will be there in the morning, the intent will be to continue to search um, in those areas where the noises were detected, and if they're continuing to be detected, and then put additional ROVs down in the last known position where the search was originally taking place. Well, I'm joined first tonight from New York by news correspondent Will Dennis Lowe for the very latest on this dramatic story. Uh, Will, the U.S. Coast Guard is, of course, leading this search but as we just said, time is running out, I think about 14 hours, they reckon, before the oxygen supplies are completely depleted. What is the plan, I suppose, at this point? Well, first of all, the strong message from the Coast Guard is that this remains very much a search and rescue operation and not a recovery mission. And of course, when it comes to those noises that's really dominated the headlines with regards to this story that's captivated uh, attention around the world, really, well, um, we heard from the Coast Guard saying they're dedicating more resources to try and locate the area where those noises were heard, but the Coast Guard uh, wouldn't be drawn or couldn't speculate on what exactly those noises could be. 
The message from officials speaking to the press uh, this afternoon on the east coast of the US say that they're not in the business of speculating, they're in the business of search and rescue. Of course, this is an effort that's really divided into two parts. There's the aerial uh, part of the search and rescue trying to hope uh, to see something on the ocean surface in case this submersive uh, vessel popped up to the surface when it ran into problems on Sunday and obviously there is also the investigation happening below the surface. There are hopes that more reinforcements will be on the way when it comes to that. A French vessel is arriving in the next few hours with a rover capable of reaching the wreckage of the Titanic thousands of meters below the surface. The strong message from officials is that they are urging everyone to not give up hope. One news organisation that I was watching today were reporting that the sounds that were being heard were potentially Morse code for SOS. Were the Coast Guard asked about that? Would they be drawn on that at all? There's been plenty of reporting on that and some speculation that because of reports that the noises were taking place every half an hour or so that that indicated that it could possibly uh, be human rather than otherwise. The Coast Guard essentially uh, dead batted uh, some of that speculation saying that uh, the spokespeople uh, weren't experts when it came to marine sounds. They had people that are experts in that field but they wouldn't essentially get ahead of the findings. They didn't want to give people any uh, false hopes or expectations. There has been uh, plenty of speculations to what these noises could be. The message overall from the Coast Guard is that they have heard these noises, they are investigating, they're dedicating more resources to the area where these noises were identified. They hope that it wields something but they're not going to be drawn on what exactly it could be. It remains at this point an unknown. I did see today also the company OceanGate itself increased scrutiny of the company and the Titan and perhaps the safety regulations that it did or did not adhere to. What can you tell me about that? Yeah, first of all, important to note that OceanGate hasn't been responding to requests from the media for comment on these allegations, but these are... Uh, speculation and charges that really date back to 2018, so a number of years now. The New York Times reporting that there were uh, concerns by experts levelled at Ocean Gate back then, uh, and and there is reporting that they refused uh, to have um, independent inspectors uh, conduct surveys on the Titan in advance. Reports they wouldn't pay for such an assessment. Also, uh, some reporting that the um, viewing window equipped on the Titan to allow uh, people to look out at the wreckage of the uh, Titanic was only tested to around a thousand or so meters while in fact of course the Titanic is down at 4,000 meters so yes plenty of speculation and reporting when it comes to the safety of the Titan but of course without any concrete ideas what exactly transpired this is purely just speculation at this point nothing concrete on why uh, this vessel went si radio silent only around two hours or so into its voyage to the Titanic wreckage. All right, well done, Slow. Thank you for bringing us that update. I am joined now by oceanographer and physicist Helen Chersky for more on that desperate search. Helen, thank you for joining us. Um, 
Tell us just how difficult it would be to identify that sound that they are talking about and to locate that sound in these conditions at that depth. Well, just to set the scene for you know the, the situation here, the, the water, as you just heard, is nearly four kilometers deep. Now, if you look up on a, you know, if you look up into the sky when there's a commercial airliner flying overhead, like a really tiny dot, that's 10 kilometers up. And so the depth of water is kind of half that. So it's an enormous depth of water. And the thing about finding things in, in deep water is that the rules in the ocean are, are kind of the other way around. You, you've got sound and you've got light. And up here on land, you know, we can use light to look for long distances. And it doesn't work like that in the ocean. Uh, because the ocean absorbs light relatively quickly, it's basically, if you're using light, you're kind of surrounded by a sort of permanent fog. You can't see very far. And so sound is the tool that you have available. Sound travels a long way in the ocean relatively easily. Um, but the thing about sound is that, you know, if you're looking down through that enormous depth of ocean, you're you're trying to see relatively small things, you know, four kilometers away, and you're trying to see them with sound. So it's very hard to, um, you need to kind of scan the surface, scan the seafloor, and then pick out these objects, you know, whatever objects you're looking for. Uh, and this is, it's, it's a really difficult thing to do. And of course, um, the part the, the the difficulty is compounded by the the Titanic site itself being in that area because it's, it's surrounded suppose, by debris. That's actually how they found the Titanic. Yeah, describe I suppose what the ocean floor would be like, and I suppose the impact that the Titanic, the wreckage of the Titanic, has had on that area of ocean floor. Well, it's quite a it's a relatively bumpy area of ocean floor anyway, because icebergs like the one that that struck the Titanic, uh, they carry sediment, you know, they carry bits of rock and they've been dropping them in that area for a long time. So it's relatively bumpy. Um, and then the uh, the de when Titanic broke in half, it, it scattered debris over five square uh, kilometers of seafloor. So there's lumpy things everywhere in that area. Um, that are from the Titanic as well as the, the boulders from the icebergs. And so looking for something else, you've got to separate it out from all of that. And of course, the other thing is that over the years that Titanic has been there, those things are degrading. So they're changing slightly with time. And there are currents along the bottom and the water is very cold, uh, one to two degrees Celsius. So these are very difficult environments to, to find anything in. And you've got to do it remotely. The, the, the difficult thing is um, to help this submersible, if anyone could find it, you would have to get a robot right to it. But you've got to scan the seafloor and see it first. And you've got all this other stuff in the way that makes that very difficult. Okay, finally, Helen, this was one other complicating factor is if they were lucky enough to identify the location of this submersible, how complicated would it be to bring it back up to the surface? It's incredibly complicated because you've, you've got to get something that can go that deep and the, the pressures are enormous. So very few you know, pieces of equipment can deal with pressures that deep. You would need a robot to go down with a cable that could hook it on somehow. And that is a really complicated operation. Um, you've got to be able to see that robot has got to know where to go. It's got to be able to see things. It's got to hook something on successfully. It's, it's a really fiddly operation. It would be extremely difficult to do. And there's very few pieces of equipment in the world that could do it. And I suppose you have to ask if the submersible itself would have that ability to withstand that pressure four days on. 
Well, it's it's supposed to. It's designed for those depths, so it is supposed to be able to withstand that pressure. But I guess that's one of the questions that we we don't know the answers to yet. Uh, would you agree with the Coast Guard? And I, you know, I appreciate that there are there are real people here. There are people's fathers, brothers, friends, loved ones in the submersible. That yes, you have to have hope, but this is now going to need a miracle. It's going to need luck and uh, the right technology. Uh, and I think that's about all you can say at this point. All right. Uh, Helen Tersky, thank you so much for joining us and bringing us that uh, very interesting insight. I'm joined here in studio by Fianna Fáil MEP Barry Andrews and People Before Profit TD Paul Murphy. You're both very welcome to the programme. I, I am very conscious that the world's media us here on The Tonight Show have covered this story now for the last couple of nights. And, and yes, it has dominated the global media agenda for the last couple of days. And yet there are many people out there who have, I think, drawn a contrast and pointed to the contrast between the reporting of this maritime tragedy and the reporting of some other recent maritime tragedies, particularly what we saw in Greece over the, la over the last week. Well, it's, it's a really important point, um, and I'm really glad you, you've raised it, um, because yes, what we're looking at here in the Titanic site is a, is a tragedy for individuals. It seems uh, it's turning out that way, and the pilot of the Titan is somebody who has family in Cork, and I'm aware that he's done fundraising for schools in Cork through the talks that he's given. So it is a personal tragedy, but it is extremely stark uh, to see the contrast with what happened at Pylos off the Greek coast, the scandal of how the Greek Coast Guard has covered up some of the activities it, it, it did, and unfortunately, the way the news cycle moved away so quickly. Mm. There, there are almost 500 bodies unaccounted for that sank to the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea. And I've been looking at the newspapers and, and the radio over the last few days to try and find evidence of anybody continuing to show an interest in this. And unfortunately, we seem to be uh, completely fatigued by uh, what's happening in the Mediterranean. So myself and other MEPs have uh, sought to table this at the next plenary of the European Parliament for what it's worth. Unfortunately, uh, I wouldn't hold out too much hope, but we are also trying to, we've put questions to Frontex, which is the EU border agency, and we've put questions to the Commission about what role they've had in, in mandating the Greek Coast Guard to intervene in that situation. But uh, it is difficult to compare. I think, I think that's your point, because this is a very, really, really sad situation that's happening. Uh, uh, yeah, I suppose what we're trying to compare really is just the media response to this, and perhaps the public response too, because you, know, you only have to look on any uh, media website to see that this is the most read, the most clicked story of for the last three days. People are fascinated by this. Are we becoming a little inured to those other tragedies though, Paul? Well, I think it's obscene. I think the contrast in the coverage, which I think helps to shape public attitudes, really is obscene. It speaks to some lives being valued correctly, but others being very cheap. That's, that's the reality. I mean, the, the scale of the tragedy. You know, you, you hear people giving out that, oh, where are the women and children? Well, there's a hundred children died on that boat and their bodies haven't been recovered and like, and it, it also, it isn't just some accident. Obviously, there's accident involved here. But this is a consequence of policy. And it, didn't, and it didn't lead to the news agenda for three or four it, days. Exactly. And, and, and this, I, mean, I, think, I think the point I think we're trying to make is all life should be treated equally. All life is of value. Yeah, and, and there's, 
almost 30,000 people have died in the Mediterranean over the past 10 years. It's absolutely horrendous, but the Fortress Europe policy continues, which is responsible. I mean, the BBC is reporting that they, they found that the boat was inactive, was in distress for seven hours, and there was no assistance given, and that's a conscious policy of the Greek Coast Guard. All right, look, we're going to leave that there for now. Barry and Paul are going to be staying with me because after the break is Ireland's neutrality on the line as the controversial International Security Forum begins tomorrow. We debate. Do you stay with us? Very welcome back. Barry and Paul are still here with me and I'm also joined now on Skype by John Brennan, Professor of European Politics from Maynooth University because the government's Forum on International Security Policy starts tomorrow after controversial comments by the President about our foreign policy and what he sees as the drift towards NATO membership. Okay, let me go to you first, Barry. What is the aim? What is the point of this forum? Well, I think we had a report uh, by the Commission on the Defence Forces in, uh, in February of last year. Um, and every single EU member state has, because of the brutal Russian aggression against Ukraine, uh, reviewed completely their security and defence policies. Some have made very drastic changes that nobody would have anticipated 15 months ago. Some have made minor changes. Some have increased their budget. Some have joined NATO. Uh, we, we know Denmark has changed its policy in terms of EU cooperation. So Ireland is now taking the opportunity uh, to have a public discussion, to as, try and get as many people together, to allow their voices to be heard. It is completely sold out. There are 80 speakers at it. There are 18 different panels. And I think it gives us an opportunity to have this discussion. It's something Ireland is very, very good at. Uh, having this kind of deliberative, participative democracy where we tackle some of the thorniest issues and have an opportunity to come to a conclusion that suits us, that suits our policy. So there are no predetermined outcome despite what you hear uh, from critics of the, of, the, of the Consultative Forum. So there will be a report produced by uh, Professor Louise Richardson who will chair the, uh, the operation. And people, what I would really like to say, one thing uh, by conclusion, and that is that I would love people to read the report because a lot of people have drawn their conclusions already based on who's involved, how it's been organized, who's not involved. But read the report. At least let's do that. It's something we've done extremely well with difficult public policy issues before, and I think we've benefited from it on this occasion. OK, you're one of those people, I would say, Paul. You would uh, admit to that. You think this is a stitch-up job, that the decision has already been made, that we're all being hoodwinked here. Why? You look at the programme. Look at the chair. You have a biased chair, picked by the government, who's going to write the report, who's on record, and she's entitled to her views, but she's not entitled to be an unbiased chair or pretend to be, in support of US militarism repeatedly, supporting the evasion of Afghanistan, supporting coups and attempted coups in uh, Latin America. She would obviously, so obviously disagree with you and so, say she is sure. there as an independent <coughs> chairperson. Sure, but, but people can and go she'd be given and the opportunity the to prove that well, she exactly. is that. Well, no, can, I, can I continue to make a point? Yeah. Secondly, in terms of the makeup of the speakers, the speakers, if, if you have a debate, what you normally have, you have an unbiased chair, and you have an equal number of speakers in favour of neutrality, and an equal number of speakers So, so what is the hidden well, agenda here? The, the, so the, just to say, the, the, the speaking <coughs> list is stacked five to one. There are five times as many speakers against neutrality in favour of militarisation. What this is about, the agenda, is about manufacturing consent 
to further undermine what is left of our neutrality. That is why we don't have the Citizens' Assembly that Barry called for a year ago, which Michael Martin promised us a couple of months ago. They got rid of the Citizens' Assembly. Why? Because of the citizens okay. and the views so, of the citizens okay, let me let Barry which are in defence of neutrality. Come back on those two points. First of all, on uh, the chair, um, she gave an interview to the Financial Times in 2009, and I would recommend the people go and look at it. And she referred to the absolute catastrophic response by the US to September 11th. And she got enormous criticism in the US for the paper that she wrote uh, for all of the publications, a lot of the interviews she gets. So to, to describe her as some kind of NATO shill or a stooge for a, a militarism or, or, or the undermining of Irish neutrality, it's just so far wide of the mark and deeply offensive to somebody as highly uh, qualified to carry out this role. And secondly, this is not about neutrality. There's only one debate on neutrality during the entire exercise. This is about the threats that Ireland is facing at the moment. It's about doing a proper and comprehensive threat analysis post the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Every other EU member state has done that, and that's what we're doing. So to try to balance it pro and anti-neutrality is about asking that. the okay. wrong question. Okay, frankly. so this isn't about neutrality. And in fairness, it's part of our the leaders have of said, okay, but they said, the there is only one debate that brings up NATO, they said, and there's two out of the 18 panels that are about neutrality. There are many other issues oh, exactly. coming up here there, about a, our defence and security policy that's not just about military issues. Well, Paul, exactly. Would you accept that? And the people no, no, have no, voted they're, they're with all, their feet and all, they will be there. They're, they're the all, people will be there. They're all about military issues, to be clear. Oh, every yes, single but, every single one of them. Yes, so for there's example, issues like cyber there's, security there's being one, discussed. There's one about Ireland getting in on the act and the new arms race, about how our Irish companies could benefit. So that last year, more money was spent than ever before on arms internationally. It's an absolute crisis and it comes at a time when we're in you know facing climate disaster right so we're going to spend more and more money and more and more more and more tons of carbon in stuff that will destroy our world it's the defense industry that is going to be represented people involved in Talos, right. for and, example and, okay. one of the major armaments the people who benefit from the creation of you know weapons of death and destruction for which ordinary right. people die in and fairness, the voice of peace activists are not present the voice of the non-aligned movement are not present the voice of austria for example in terms of a neutral country well, in europe is true. not present none of those because this is a ready hope. Uh, is, there, is that not is that not actually a fair point no, if you look not, at I'm just looking at some of the panels here and it's lessons from Norway and Switzerland. Norway, long-standing NATO members. Lessons from Finland and Sweden, two countries that were neutral, exactly. that were now, or not neutral, but countries that weren't in NATO who are now going to join NATO. It is not just Paul who is saying this. Our own president has said there is a drift here, a dangerous drift here in the thinking that's coming from Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael TDs towards moving our military neutrality to a different place? Well, none of, none of that is accurate. I think that what we have... Well, those all, panels... all, all of the Sorry, what, what you've said in terms of the speaker is absolutely correct. But I, I don't accept the, the, the argument of drift. I think we are having a proper public discussion. This isn't being handed down to people. This is the type of participative democracy that Ireland has excelled at. Why is I want it not to repeat a citizens' that assembly? Well, it's not because more people can be involved. And we have now. I did call for a citizens' assembly, as Paul has just pointed out. But I wrote that paper in early of 2022. I published it in April 2022, and obviously everything has changed since then. We now have to do this quickly. We need to have a proper discussion around this. We'll have a look at the report. The government isn't bound by the report. It's something that we'll take on board and we'll make any recommendations. But on spending, 
what we're doing in terms of, you know, we have to increase spending on Irish military. We have just four boats now where we used to have nine. We have no aircraft. We have no radar. We have... We're so underinvested, and, and we don't have enough personnel in, in the army. We have just yeah, 7,800. So I don't think there's anybody arguing that we, ha we can't increase our spending. It's absolutely essential. Yeah, area. for you, actually, Paul Murphy, protecting our neutrality, does that mean we have any military capability whatsoever? The first thing we need to do is to ensure that the men and women of our... It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I'm Sandra. And I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Defense forces are not living in poverty. Okay, so we need to okay. invest the money to be on. able to pay them. Would you properly. enhance our military capability at all? I wouldn't be buying fighter jets. Every fighter jet you buy. I don't think anybody's buy, talking about well, well, nobody's they, talking they, they absolutely no, are. They're not. They no, are. no, no, they, no, they are. You can not. go and look at the report. The report recommends that we buy Saab Gripens. They're fighter jets. They're, they're not worth, fighter jets. You buy them 100 million euros each one. That's the equivalent of buying three of building three hundred and fifty homes. You accept that so our I don't coastline, think that the that best our defense that Ireland the is best vulnerable, and that the, has been shown the, that our airspace has we've had to the look best, to the RAF for help there, the, if necessary. Do you accept that we are vulnerable here? No. The best defense that Ireland can have is by being a neutral state, by not aligning with NATO on the okay. one hand or with CSTO but, 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 okay, on I the just, other hand. I just in, want in to a go world to... that is divided but, but unfortunately, the left has completely underestimated the threat from Russia for the last in, 15 months and uh, continues to underestimate. Okay, I just want and, to go and, to And your party here. allows allowed 3 million US soldiers to travel through Shannon Airport, responsible for wars in Iraq, in right. Afghanistan. Well, millions of people are fighting old wars. I have another speaker standing by. I want to go to John Brennan here. John, 
you tweeted, um, I suppose, your very strong disagreement with what the president said in that interview with the Business Post at the weekend. You've also said there are real global security threats and we in Ireland need to grow up and face that. Yes, Kira. I think we've had an ostrich mentality about security and defence for a very long time, and it's reflected in exactly the things that Barry is pointing to, the fact that our seas are very often patrolled by our European partners because we cannot put a single ship to sea. Our skies are patrolled by the RAF because we don't have the planes to do it. You may recall that in the recent crisis in Sudan, we had to rely on our European partners to airlift our citizens out of Sudan. We had to do the same thing in Afghanistan. So what this forum is about is catch up, basically. We're trying to catch up because over a very long period of time, we have neglected, extremely neglected our security and defense. And it part of the context is the sweeping changes that are taking place in Europe and globally that you've referred to. But this is also about our own self-interest. We should re really need to understand this, that even neutral countries in Europe, such as Austria and Sweden and so on, uh, all have a significantly greater capacity to deal with the kind of threats that are out there than we do. Okay, so what John, the forum is doing that, is I, trying to face up to those threats. Okay, I just want to put that point back to uh, Paul Murphy. We have a, a, an ostrich mentality here. We can stick our head in the sand all we want, but other neutral countries have a better ability to defend themselves. They have better military capacity and you can still do that and still be neutral. You, you we can. can't pretend you can. that we can't patrol our waters and we can't look after our airspace. You, you certainly can, um, but let's be real. A small country like Ireland is never going to be able to compete on the military plane with the major powers, right? Ireland spends about a billion euros a year on uh, military. The US spends 800 billion, the China about uh, 200 billion, Russia 70 or 80 billion, Britain 65 billion. You, you simply cannot build a military that is going to be a significant deterrent to them. So let's be aware of that and then but ask, I, but I th why is okay, this, why Paul, is this just, question? Just, just, well, just one this? question to that. Sure. It's not about whether we could deter. It's just maybe he would, I think John would say, it's about having your own self-respect that you don't have to call on the RAF if there's an issue in your airspace. It's okay. just about taking responsibility well, if, 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 if for a, your own defence. If it's a choice of a squadron of fighter jets that would be destroyed in, you know, a matter of hours if you were actually faced with significant invasion or building a housing estate, I'm in favour of building a housing estate. And I think it's important to know. We can say that about anything. It's well, important to know that John just... Brennan is in favour of joining NATO. Yeah, right? okay. So when he's raising these points, the they're about preparing this country to join NATO later. It's not about joining now, but in order for you Ireland to be... You feel this is a slippery slope. Exactly. Okay, you know, John, Ireland would need to increase this military expenditure by a lot to be accepted into NATO, and that's what this agenda is actually about. Uh, and John, you would admit that is your agenda. You do think we should join NATO, and the recent Irish Times poll would say that there is a very insignificant number of people in Ireland who would agree with you. So that's not respecting the will of the Irish people. All I want, Kira, is to have an open and honest conversation about these issues. I've argued for NATO membership for a long period of time. There's no secret in that at all. I am amongst a small minority of people of the 80-odd speakers who are going to be speaking at the forum who actually are in favour of NATO membership. But I don't know what planet Paul is living on, but it's not a planet in the real world. We simply have to get serious about 
Russian provocations in our territorial waters, about the fact that Ireland is one of the globalized countries in the world, and that our prosperity depends very much on the connections that we have in Europe and in globally. And that means we have obligations to defend ourselves. It means okay. we also have obligations to peer countries in Europe. But I have to say that all of this has been given extraordinary fuel by the remarks that President Higgins made at the weekend. They were so intemperate, so over the top. I have never seen a presidential intervention of this kind in my lifetime. All right. And okay, I think let me the put withdrawal that back of remarks quickly. that he made... I know, I know, John, I saw your, your tweets about this. Uh, you felt that the president should resign for the remarks as made. Did you have any issue with those remarks, Barry? Well, I had, had issue with the content of them, no doubt. Uh, as to the convention of the president intervening in matters of public policy, I think that ship has sailed a long time ago. For the last 30 years, presidents of Ireland have made statements. What they do uh, every month is the president meets with the government and they have an opportunity to ventilate any concerns that the president has with the government and vice versa. But, 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 but clearly what, what's happened what here... this was. This was an interview with the national yeah, newspaper. So, so under the constitution, the president is required to submit speeches in advance. And I've seen this happen. I've seen the president speaking at events and he goes off script. And most of the time, nobody really cares that much about it. It's, and, and most of the time, he does a really brilliant job and people respect that. So I don't really, uh, I don't really mind that he goes off script. I think the content was really unhelpful. The comments about Dame Richardson is really unhelpful. Which he's this, apologized for. Which he's apologized for. But, you know, th that, that is, I think he just went too far okay. off script um, on this occasion. Uh, to the point that... The, the geopolitical environment now, Paul, mm. is unstable. It has utterly changed. Every other country in Europe is reflecting on its defence and security policy. We need to do that too. We certainly need to reflect on that changed environment. And that changed environment is a world that is divided into two major blocks, a US-led NATO bloc and a China with Russia as a kind of secondary partner and some independence alternative bloc. And there's some elements of the world pre-World War I in the sense of you can see these two major blocs facing off against each other. You can see the potential for another major conflict around Taiwan. And what role does Ireland want to play in that? Are we going to line up with one or, or of those two blocs? In this case, it'll clearly be the US-led bloc. And neither of these sides are the good guys, right? They're all pursuing their own interests. Or are we going to be a voice for peace with countries in the non-aligned movement in consistently opposing oppression, imperialism. And that's the viewpoint that actually okay. the majority of ordinary people do, want to, and that's why they won't let people have a say uh, Barry, in a referendum. Do well, you think from the EU's perspective, they would like to see Ireland align themselves further with the EU outlook on this? Well, first of all, you know, it's not two blocks. NATO was described by President Macron as having suffered brain death under the Trump presidency. So Europe began to think, well, we've got to start defending ourselves, this idea of strategic autonomy. And uh, so the idea that it's just two blocks is wrong. We could see President Trump back in the White House at the end of next year. Um, so it's not a bipolar world, it's a multipolar world. And the European Union has to uh, defend itself. But it's, what it's does been the European many Union times want from you know, described as a, as a vegetarian in a world, world of carnivores. So what, what Europe doesn't require anything of Ireland. Ireland is independent in, in its defence and security policy, but we have 
60% of undersea cables that land in Ireland. We have 40% of European data. We have 90% of the North Atlantic air uh, traffic going over Irish airspace. We have a massive responsibility and a massive vulnerability. And that's what this is about. It's trying to surface all of those new situations in the context of the Russian aggression against Ukraine. All right, Ukraine. look, we're going to have to leave that there for now. Next statistics show that Ireland is the most expensive country in the EU. But what can we do about it? Stay right here. Welcome back. They may be still a year away, but hotel prices in the capital for next June's Taylor Swift concerts have rocketed. This as new EU stats show Ireland is now the most expensive country in the Union for goods and services. Barry and Paul are still here with me and I'm also now joined by Owen O'Mara Walsh, CEO of the Irish Tourism Confederation and Olivia Kelly, the Dublin editor of the Irish Times. You are both very welcome to Thank the programme. Owen, I want to start with you because I did go online today as well and I looked up the dates for next year. I think it's June 28th and 29th. It's over a year away and I was gobsmacked by the prices that some of the hotels were charging. Is that Basic price gouging. Well, it, the prices that I heard, I think I heard a price of 999 euro, which is outlandish. Um, and I think some of those prices, which are, are by the minority of hotel and tourism operators, are, are crazy. And I, I certainly wouldn't buy them. I wouldn't be encouraging anyone to buy them. Um, I, don't, I think the key thing is I don't think it's reflective of the broader industry, either here in Dublin or throughout uh, Ireland. Um, I think it's critical that as an industry we, we remain value for money. On certain weekends of matches or concerts or gigs, there's always going to be a spike in prices. But some of the prices I've heard today are ridiculous. Is that not what we always hear? Because this is a conversation that we've had on this programme on multiple occasions, and you'll hear it on you know, radio stations right around the country. And what you often hear is, this isn't reflective of the industry. This is just a few bad apples and they give everybody a bad name. Is that not a bit of an easy excuse? I, I think the whole Taylor Swift conversation is a funny one because the, the concert, as I understand it, is 12 months away or so. I think a lot of hotels aren't on sale yet. So, so the hotels that are online are, I don't know whether they're chancing their arm or whatever, but I, as I say, I don't think it's reflective of the broader industry. Just before I came on here, I looked at a Saturday night, uh, this coming Saturday night, middle of June in Dublin, and there was lots of availability for hotels, 200 euro, 250 euro, three, four star hotels. So, But is I that because we know there's actually not huge demand in Dublin generally over the summer months? No, the summer months are, I mean, this is, this is the peak summer period. Uh, domestic tourism and international visitors are particularly strong over the summer months. So, so it's a busy summer season, and I think there is good value in Irish tourism. I think some of those rogue operators that catch all the media headlines do the industry a disservice. And I think if you, there's 20,000 tourism and hospitality businesses uh, within Irish tourism, the vast majority SMEs, the vast majority uh, working off modest profit margins. And I think the, the vast majority are very uh, sensible and uh, charge very sensible and proportionate pricing. But those prices that I heard in relation to the Taylor Swift concert are just outlandish. As you say, they, they do catch the headlines. And I think uh, Minister, I think Pascal Dunne, he was out about this today. Eamon Ryan was out about this today. He said the prices simply aren't worth it. He wouldn't encourage people to book. But uh, what is possibly even more significant is this can do real reputational damage to the tourism industry here. Would you agree with that? And if you do, what is your... Message, I suppose, to those rogue businesses, as you would call well, them. Well, as I say, 20,000 businesses out there, I think the vast majority are very, very um, sensible and uh, very, very 
um, proper business people. Um, I think the rogue operators, this very small minority that do charge excessive prices are not reflective of the broader industry. I think they do the industry a disservice. Um, I, I think that the key thing to remember is tourism is Ireland's largest indigenous industry and biggest regional employer. So it's vital that we maintain the really good, strong value proposition that we've had in the past and into the future, even though costs are rising. And the other thing I just say uh, is that other cities and other countries have very similar problems. So Ireland isn't unique in this regard. Uh, Olivia, would you accept that as just a couple of rogue operators, the vast majority of people working in this industry don't jack up their prices to these obscene levels when they know there's a big event and going to be big demand? Well, I'm not even sure that we are talking about rogue operators here. I think that there was a price today given of 999 and the, the hotel in question that that applied to, they've said, well... That was from the a booking site, not their own website, a booking site. And their hotel rooms aren't actually on sale yet for, for that particular weekend, the Taylor Swift weekend. And so the booking site is using a, a default price. And the, the I think the hotel said, if you were to look, say, in, in February of next year, you would see the same 999 because they're just not selling their rooms yet. So I have to be okay, honest, but, but I think it was I, a bit I, of a nonsense I sort of story. feel already that I'll be sitting here in June 2024, weeks out from the Taylor Swift concert, having this conversation they'll, about a number of rooms be available at extortionate prices. They'll be expensive. I don't think there'll be a grand, well, I'd, I'd say very few hotels be a grand. Yeah, they will be expensive. Dublin is an expensive city. Like Owen was quoting prices uh, of 200 and 250 for this weekend as if that was reasonable. It's, re it's an awful lot of money just to put your head down for a night. You know, that's, that's very expensive in comparison with other European cities, particularly other European cities of our size. Is the truth, though, that even though this gets under people's skin here, hotels charge it? because people pay it. Yeah, exactly. And you, you could say that that's maybe because there are too few hotels. That's a very controversial thing to say because people say, oh God, no, the city is coming down with hotels. That's because we had a long number of years where there were, where there were growing tourism numbers, um, but not new hotels being built. So there was, there was that dearth of hotels. Now, suddenly it's picked up in the last, say, five years and people are saying, oh, all that's being built in Dublin is hotels. And it's a sort of a, a false equivalent. What people are missing is the, the, the number of apartments that should be being built. And people think that hotels are being built and that means apartments aren't being built. But it, it shouldn't be an equivalence. You can, you can build hotels, just build some more apartments. OK, in terms of, I suppose, what the, what the ministers have said today, you know, and you get this every time a minister will come out and say, you know, we, we, we um, you know, disagree with these prices. It is price gouging. It's a disgrace. And, you know, we'd appeal to the hotels to bring them down. Do they heed any of that? Well, no, hotels are going to, you know, that's the market. They're a commercial business. You know, they're going to get what they can for their rooms. You know, what the, what the government could do if they wanted is look at that VAT rate again. Mm -hmm. Whether they're willing to do that or not, we'll see near the budget. To that point, I suppose, people are possibly watching tonight and thinking, I'm, I'm kind of sick and tired of hearing this conversation and I'm actually quite frustrated by the conversation and by the same, I suppose, narrative we hear from politicians, which is, you know, wag, 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 wag. But they have an option to do something, as Olivia says, and they don't. Well, I, I, first of all, I mean, 
the, the, the passage of this story over the last 24 hours has evolved and the, the truth has kind of emerged that, it, well, it's to do with the online booking. It's 12 months out. It's not really as bad as people described it. But it is a constant refrain we're hearing about price gouging associated with certain events. And actually, and, I did, but, look, but I I did look myself today yeah. online and I looked at other hotels and hostels. Mm. And again, the prices perhaps, perhaps are the wrong prices, but yeah. they were extortionate for that weekend. Yeah. So, but the truth is different to the way it was presented in the original. So before ministers are confronted with this and a doorstep steps throughout Dublin throughout uh, the day and eventually the truth gets its boots on now it's not a very pretty picture it's still uh, a, a, not a, a quite a negative picture but I think that there's no just your question on the VAT rate there I don't think there is a uh, proof that there's a relationship between the VAT rate and the price gouging I think these things two things are not necessarily connected uh, nevertheless I think responsible b conduct of business is at the core of this and you know the, the government taxpayers supported hotels, recognising the provision of tourist accommodation to the public good. They supported them in COVID. They provided support in the temporary business energy support scheme. Um, they've had forbearance on the VAT rate. And, you so know, there, there has a, to be a bit of return for this. You a know, bit of but, give uh, and take, but But, but it is a consumer not market. A of people time. are prepared to pay these kind of... But we will, be get, we will suffer damage as a tourist offering in this country if the Irish Hotels Federation... Uh, don't get a grip on this issue on their membership, uh, but unfortunately, it is the commercial market. Um, Paul, what would you expect the Irish Hotels Federation to do if, as Barry says, look, this is this is doing damage, this is reputational damage, and there are real jobs at stake here. We know how many communities rely on tourism in this country. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I think they're going to continue to do what they do, which is act to maximise their profit. <laughs> like, that's that's the setup of a capitalist economy. That's what they are going to continue to do. So is um, the issue here then, because I, I've been you know, to festivals abroad in other European cities and I never felt I was being price gouged. Why? Yes. Uh, I'm thinking of a festival I went in Barcelona because there was so much supply. There was so much competition out there that they couldn't because I could have gone elsewhere. In Dublin, you can't. So is the problem a lack of supply? We need more hotels. Well, see, I, I don't think it is just a question of we can have more hotels and more apartments. Certainly not at the same time because of, there's a limit in terms of construction workers. And I think we need to be directing construction towards building affordable homes for people as opposed to very high-end apartments, office blocks, hotels. In this city, that's the priority. And I would say that, like, in general, people feel ripped off in this country and they're right to feel ripped off. We have some of the highest prices across the European uh, Union. But I, I think most people will be more concerned about the cost of food, going up the cost of, of basics, which mean that we have, you know, one in seven parents say they struggle to provide a main meal for their families. And I think it's on things like that that we should be looking at introducing price controls to stop the ripoff and what is happening, which is greedflation in this economy, across Europe and across much of the world. Okay, Owen, you want to get in there? I, I, I disagree with Paul in terms of I don't think price control is going to work within the tourism industry. Uh, what will work is, is competition and increased supply. There's an acute uh, tourism accommodation hotel shortage in Dublin and Ireland, the best way to moderate prices is actually to increase the supply of hotel stock. Notwithstanding, I suppose, the perspective of a lot of people, which is there's too many hotels in Dublin. I, I disagree. In fact, all, all, the, all the analysis shows that there's a shortage of hotel stock in Dublin and indeed in Ireland. If you want to moderate prices, you need to increase the, the supply of hotel stock. And playing around with the VAT, I think we have to be very, very careful with that. I, I don't think we should punish the masses for the sins of the few. VAT at 9% is the correct rate for tourism and hospitality and it should be left alone. Well, what can the Hotel Federation do then to these, you've called them, not me, rogue operators, who are hiking prices and giving the industry, you're telling me, a bad name? 
Yeah, well, I don't speak on behalf of the Hotels Federation, as you can understand. I speak on behalf of the broader tourism industry. And I do agree with the panelists that value is very, very important. Um, and if we lose our value proposition, we're, we're, he we're heading towards dicey times. The tourism sector is a long way from full recovery. We're about three, four years from full recovery. So although we're having a busy summer season in terms of demand, supply is greatly compromised and there's all sorts of issues at play, costs of business and so on. So there's a long way to go to full recovery. And one of the tools of full recovery is keeping a competitive that rate. Yeah, you, yeah, and you talk about being competitive, and yet we have this Eurostat report out today. Olivia, Ireland is the most expensive country in the EU for household expenditure on goods and services last year. We are 46% above the EU average. Why is that? Why is there? There's so many reasons for, for it, but I can say that nobody will be surprised by that. You know, we're everyone living here, everyone coming here, you know, as we say, the tourists who are going to be booking hotels even just this weekend will be paying more than they're paying in other European cities. People know when they buy, when they go out for... Uh, that there's no value. I, I, so we're not wrong in our perception that there's, there feels a time like there's no value anywhere in Ireland. Yeah, you know, everyone will be coming back from their holidays this summer and, and saying that. If I could just pick up back up on one thing in relation to the hotels and apartments issue, though, I, I think that's a bit of a false equivalence. I don't think you're saying there's no construction workers, Paul, uh, to do both hotels and apartments. There are. The problem is, is the commercial office space. That's where there's an oversupply. There isn't an oversupply of hotels in Dublin. There isn't an oversupply of apartments, we very well know. But I think what there is, is there's too many construction workers working on building sites for offices. Okay, I think I think the point that you're making is we just need to prioritise that there should be a priority yeah, yeah. For, for homes for people yeah. above all else. Just back to that issue of us being one of the most expensive countries in Europe. Do you have any understanding how we've gotten to this position? Yeah, well, I mean, is it a bad thing? If you look at the countries that are top of this list, they they have the highest standards of living. So a, a, a simple index like this doesn't explain the structure of the Irish economy. That we are, uh, you know, our location adds cost. Our high rates of VAT adds cost. The lack of competition in certain sectors adds cost. The lack of economy of scale adds cost. So you know, we are at and we have a higher standard of living than other some yeah, other yeah, yeah that are and we we are top of lots of indices like labour productivity, rel relative poverty. We do very very well. Life expectancy, but you can't take these in isolation. You have to look okay. at the broad structure. But yes, we do have a cost of living. I don't want to. Uh, under, understate that. All right, look, we're going to have to go uh, here. Thank you to all of my guests this evening. That's it from us. Our programme is available as a podcast on all major platforms and you can find us on Instagram and TikTok. But from all the late team here, good night. Take care.